0: you're about to listen to workplace worldwide a podcast featuring news deep dives and interviews about our workplaces and workers rights worldwide
1: another one welcome to workplace worldwide and we have part two of our interview with kimberly newen coming up on today's episode so i'm not wasting any time and i strongly suggest you don't either What I mean by that is if you haven't listened to part one of this interview, you're missing out us introducing Kimberly. You're missing out on a lot of context for part two. So go back and do that now. But assuming that you have done that and that you are just desperate to hear part two, here it is. Let's go. No one really knows why this ad ended up being posted on LinkedIn.
0: Yeah. So no one knows why this ad was posted on LinkedIn. Never really got a clear answer on that. Um, my manager speculated that maybe they were, you know, getting ready to convert some people. So I waited around to see if, like, maybe the next person in line was getting converted. I'm mean, I, fair enough that, you know, they wouldn't consider me over someone who's, like, next in line who's been there for, like, two years. Mm. Um, but I didn't hear any news of anyone being converted, so I'm not really sure what happened with that listing. Um, yeah, it's it's a mystery to all of us.
1: Okay. So no one knows why it happened and then nothing really happened thereafter.
0: Uh, yep, that's um, that's essentially how
1: things work usually. So you, this was how you brought it up with your team at Citibank, which was the people who were actually posting it, but you were the agency employee. Were there any other follow-ups or reactions or anything like that from your tweet after you sort of went public about it well you didn't go public you posted your frustrations and then that went public (laughs) I started
0: getting a bunch of like phone calls from the agency and I think they were trying to fire me but I at the time conveniently was on PTO so I ignored their calls um they straight up at some point called me like once every hour starting at like 7 a.m pacific time um and then they like left me voicemails and they texted me. They like messaged me on every like work channel they possibly could like they're straight up harassing me. And I was like, well, I'm on PTO, whatever this is can wait until I'm back in the office on Monday. So I just didn't respond. Um, but I called my boss um, at city, my manager at city. And I said, you know, I'm getting a lot of phone calls from the agency. There is probably a high likelihood that I might be let go. Mm. And so I want to make sure that, you know, if I, don't come in Monday, or and not allowed to come in Monday. That I can, I transition my projects to the appropriate people. Um, don't leave anybody like dangling. Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize my my fault in this. Like I take responsibility for what I said in my tweet. I don't regret that I said it. I might regret some of the the repercussions, but if if, if this leads to me being let go, I understand. And my manager said, actually, you know, I've been on the phone with our lawyers all day, and I don't think that we can, we're going to let you go. Like we fully expect you to be back in the office Monday. And I said, Oh really? And he said, yeah, well, it's your legal right to, to complain about your salary. So you know we're not going to retaliate. And so, um, I never followed up with my agency who had been like so desperately trying to reach me and eventually they stopped trying to reach me. And I've been an employee ever since. So, um,
1: I guess everything turned out fine. That's interesting. Did did they use the word retaliate? <laughs> they did use the word
0: retaliate. Yeah, they said, we will not retaliate. And I was like, okay, very,
1: uh, very legal. Um, I mean, and, and at no point are they actually addressing the concerns that you raised in the tweet. They're just being like, no, no, we won't retaliate. That's it. They
0: addressed it with the media, the Citibank specifically.
1: Yeah. So, but never with you. No, no. I mean, I'm not going to ask how that makes you feel. And I think that's pretty obvious, but like, what's your game plan? <laughs> like, do you just like kind of, cause I mean, like you said, it's sort of turned out well, but I mean, are they, the balls in their court, they're just never going to kick it, I guess is how it's going to be at your employment. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, like, really difficult to have a game plan because I feel like my experience of trying to negotiate for my market value has been, um, like, the meme where all the Spider-Mans are pointing at each other, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, they keep telling me to go back to my agency, and my agency is, like, no, you got to do a performance review, and then, like, I think at some point the Associated Press, like, actually asked City. they're, like, well, can't you just give the agency more money to give her money, and then he said... Well, actually, she's not qualified for that salary ban. They told the Associated Press that. They told a bunch of media outlets that she's not qualified for that salary ban. And I was like, well, that's odd because one of my coworkers who I I spoke to arguably has more specific experience to this role than me um, is actually getting paid less than me. So, like, is he qualified for Amount that like I don't like I don't understand where the unqual- unqualified came from, but they they kind of cited the specific like five to eight years in in the job description. Um, and to be real, like I'm not that far off from the five to eight years of experience. Mm. And I also just feel like that's boilerplate text that they copied and pasted from human resources. Like I don't think they're actually holding anybody to five to eight years of experience. So they just really like needed a reason mm-hmm. to to be able to justify to the media why they weren't going to attempt to pay me more money. So no, I don't have a game plan. I'm honestly, I'm honestly tired of playing the game. I don't want to play the game. I just want to show up to work and mm. do a good job and then go home. Like, I don't, I don't want to play this game.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's kind of what it feels like though, as well, you know, because like you say, there's this um, proxy communication. So they'll tell the media, you know, X, Y, and Z, but they won't communicate that with you. I mean, what what kind of rational, reasonable employee do when their own, um, you know, when the people involved, the employers, the people involved in the transaction at least, are not willing to address them directly? You know, it's yeah, not great. Right. Maybe just to go a little bit um more into the this the side of it where we talk a, a bit more about pay equity in general. I think what we're seeing now, and especially in the states you know, the strikes are on the rise. That's also happening in the UK and in Europe. There is clear worker dissatisfaction and, dare I say, distress. It's getting to a point of deep distress for for many, many people. And I think we sort of had this post-pandemic period where there felt like there was a bit of optimism about how we could negotiate with our working lives, Be, be that cold hard cash or the other benefits that come with that. However it feels as though the pendulum for the corporate world has completely swung in the other direction. They're really sort of doubling down on this idea that actually, like, you have equity. <laughs> Didn't you see the D&I policy? Like, you have it. <laughs> and kind of like just moving away from it. So why do you think it's such a struggle for these companies and for this corporate culture to embrace the realities of equitable workplaces?
0: I think that it is harder for them to kind of enact these policies that may cause any like short term loss of profits because of the way that we set up shareholders. And like, because it used to be the case, um, there's actually a really, really good New York Times article on this about this company that actually ended up like outsourcing all of their labor to like other countries even though like, it was pretty clear from the outset that that wasn't gonna be good for the longevity of the company. Um, when they did outsource their labor, like the, the quality of their manufactured parts kind of went down. They had to like train all of these people. It was like really costly to train them. But just because like in the short term, like paying these like foreign workers, a lower wage was going to cause like a bump in profits. It like pleased all of their shareholders that really just, they just wanted their dividends. They wanted the, the value of their stock to increase. That's really all that they cared about. And I think the New York times did a really good job delving into why this wasn't an issue in the past. And part of the reason why it wasn't an issue in the past is because in the past at this company, the majority of the shareholders were workers. As part of their compensation package, they got they got a share of the, the, the st- they got stocks and then they were able to have a, like more of a say um, and more power into the decisions that are made at the company and to be able to advocate for themselves as like actual shareholders in the company. So I think that like there are like workers are no longer like getting their slice of the pie anymore, like they don't have any power anymore. Like the power sits completely in the hands of the company and not not even really the company, typically just the shareholders and the shareholders only care about one thing. So I think that like, that's that's why. Um, you know, a lot of companies are really kind of like swinging their, their pendulum to the other side because like coming out of the pandemic, now all of these people who maybe like lost money during the pandemic, um, they're coming out and they're like, well, pandemic is over, like we want our returns, like we want our money. Um, and so
1: it's just kind of a bad situation for, for workers who are kind of caught in that, that game. I would agree. And there's been some interesting statistics. We've had so many layoffs in 2023 from really big companies. And every time there's a mass layoff, you see this, the social world reacting, you know, with with sort of a conscience about it all. And then you see the share value get a bump. The market likes it when companies lay off employees on mass because they're going to get that little profit bump because they're cutting costs the whole system is incentivizing c-level leaders and 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 everyone that's working for the shareholders ultimately um to kind of disregard workers and i think when you combine it with their performance sort of you know there's also become like a very performative track with like a lot of big companies which is we are this we are already this it's sort of rammed down our throat we sponsor pride now and then you kind of have this very secret almost Like, I don't know what, you're, you're the poet, but like, what's the word, like an overlord, which is the shareholders that, you know, they're just going to do anything to, to please because that's how they get their money back. How do you think this plays out in the shorter term, sort of 2023 to 2024, but also into 2025 and beyond?
0: I mean, I think obviously this is a very like unsustainable practice, like, there's kind of this idea that you know the rich are just getting richer and the poor are just getting poorer but then like let's just take that to its logical conclusion right the rich only get richer the poor only get poorer eventually like all the poor people, if we just keep like going down this road, are just gonna die. Like we will no longer have like a poor class, and then like it'll just be the rich people who are gonna be like arguing over like who's the next like level of poor. So like it's it's unsustainable for for, for the long term. Um, and also like, it's a drain on like resources. Like, if we think of like even in the fashion industry, fast fashion, although it's like, creating a bunch of like value and a lot of money for, for all these people, it's unsustainable. Yes. Eventually, like, we are going to run out of space or out of landfills to dump our clothing in. Um, we're going to run out of raw materials to like, keep producing this clothing. So I just think that it's very, very short-sighted um, to, to do business this way.
1: Yes. And it seems to be a running theme, given that we sort of started more acutely talking about your experiences and sort of having that, that exact same sentiment and then going to the more macro level and sort of seeing the same problem, this shorter term thinking, making these decisions um, to, to get the profit and then moving on. It's, it's not an old concept, but I feel that the with social media and just like general capacity, with technology, we have just been able to sort of put that into hyper overdrive and sort of shorten the, the lifespan of the capitalist beast, so to say. But it does appear that, that workers are kind of getting to that point where the only leverage we now have as workers or that workers have is time. And now we're starting to see company after company after company face strikes because people are saying, we are not going to give you that time to make a point of how valuable that time is. Uh, however, we're also now seeing the de- people being de-incentivized to strike because of the sheer amount of union busting going on. Uh, is this something that you, given all of these things, not just specifically union busting, but is this factoring into how you think about your work opportunities and what's next for you in terms of your day job?
0: Um, if I'm being honest, Yes and no. Like, I don't think about it, like, a lot, just because, like, I've never worked in a place where there was a union. I've never Mm. been part of a union. Right. Um, Typically, unions are not for white-collar workers. Um, It would be nice, I think, if I had a union. Um, I think about that a lot. I'm like, wow, like, it would be great um, if all of the contractors could get together and somehow, like, form a union to, like, you know – make some demands to, to just demand basic things like livable salaries and like pay time off things like that um but the reality is i think that there's going to be very few places that i you know if i were to look for a new job right now there's gonna be few places that are gonna have like a union like that or a union to protect me um so part of what i'm trying to also think about is what What can you do like outside of a union? Like union is a bad word to to, like the corporate like overlords as as you put it. So like how can we reframe the concept of unionizing so that it is not such a bad word and could possibly be seen as like a positive thing to the company?
1: What do you think would make unions not be a bad word? What do you think that there needs to be? Is it to do with media and I have some questions about the media as well but is it related to to the media and the way they talk about corporate culture or just society
0: I'm not honestly really sure because at the end of the day what you're trying to do is you're trying to take the concept of a union which is like a bad word to the corporate overlords and you're trying to have A union but not call it a union so I think that's like where you know these understandings of these like macro level like things would probably come into play because the only way that I think that corporations really respond is for financial gain Mm -hmm. like they're not going to do things because it's the right thing let's be realistic um they only want to do things when it either causes an increase in profit or to mitigate a a loss of profit And so if people can organize and find ways to affect the bottom line, that is the only way that they're gonna be able to to unionize or to like, to make any sort of like impact. Um, and I think that's like the idea with the WGA strike right now, is that like they're they're hoping to hold out until like the, the film industry has had such like a bad time, like, you know, mm-hmm. getting hit by, you know, their bottom line getting hit, so. Um, We should all take notes from the WGA strike. I'm I'm really interested to see what the outcome is and if they're able to actually like renegotiate their
1: their terms. I would agree and I think what's what's fascinating about the WGA strikes and I guess also I, I suspect the SAG strikes are coming as well and potentially the Directors Guild is that it is you know if you take an employee like you your work is not visible, your day job isn't visible, we're taking you know hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people whose jobs are very visible and what we're seeing is nothing different to what we see in every single situation where you've got one group who wants to change the transaction and another group that wants to keep it as it is and it seems to me that it's a huge learning opportunity we had the WGA strikes in 2007 but like you like you've noted this is something where we can really see with a lot of visibility exactly how these negotiations take place and, you know, what's on the table and also the the degradation of people. They're not even asking for that much. That's what I find wild about this strike. <laughs> they're not even asking for that much. I also
0: think that the things that they're asking for makes the industry better because like, I think there've been a lot of complaints in like recent years. Like people have complained that like TV is unwatchable now. Um, all of these like streaming services are putting out like unwatchable content. People don't, they don't like the stuff that's being put out anymore. And in order to get better content, you need to pay the people who create the content because like promise you that the CEO of Netflix has zero ideas about like yeah. content. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the fact that they're just like, well, short term profits, we can actually continue to put out like really bad content. And actually, we could put out more bad content by like maybe hiring AI to like replace writers instead. Um, and people will love that. Like I just, again, very short sighted um, mm. and people are going to like, I cancel my Netflix subscription to like yesterday. I was like, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Like this content, like I'm not watching this.
1: I noticed this as well with myself with Netflix, the majority of the content I'm watching isn't written by someone. And I wouldn't be that sad if I wasn't watching it. It's just, because it's there and been reasonable but now that transaction with myself is starting to change I'm like it's not worth it bro <laughs> especially if you ain't gonna pay people like I'm not doing that and, and so I wanted to actually just before we move too far on in the realm is talk a little bit about the, the media because I think that's one thing that, that comes to my mind with the WGA strikes is how the media is covering it and I'm very curious what you thought of the coverage of your tweet and the sort of aftermath of all of that in the media
0: um, one of the first reporters who reached out to me literally said to me, She's like, Well, we called your job for con for comment. And I was like, Why would you do that? Like, these organizations are so chaotic, they're so large and chaotic that like I might have actually been able to fly under the radar and they might have not have known that I work there yeah. and had these reporters not actually like reached out and and talked to my job. Um so I wasn't very happy about the fact that that happened. Um, That's not right. Right. And I wish they had asked. Um, I think their justification was like, well, you already tweeted so publicly anyway. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't name my company. Yeah. And you really underestimate how busy people are. Like, not that, like, there would be people who who might see the tweet and might, like, clap for me, but never look up where I worked.
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a bit of a violation as well, because like you said, you know, you didn't put it you you tweeted something it wasn't a public tweet for public consumption in the same way that they were sort of taking it as a reportable news story
0: yeah like I didn't at Citibank I didn't at my agency okay. you know I was just like I was like this is just an experience that I had with an entity that I'm not going to name um and I just want to like whine about it and then like the media really took it and like ran with it. I think when I was like some reporters later they asked me they're like, "Oh, is it okay if we name you or we name your company or we reach out to your company for for comment?" And I was like, "Honestly, the media train has left without me." So at this point like it <laughs> it doesn't matter um whether you call or whether you don't call, whether you name me or don't, like I'm like I'm already like the train's already left and I'm still at the station. Yeah. So But I do appreciate that most media places –
1: well, actually, I didn't see any articles that were critical of what I did. No, and I I was really looking. Like, it was pretty reasonable. Like, it was – even the Daily Mail. Like, even the Daily Mail. (laughs) Yeah. um,
0: So I I appreciated the, the support. Um, and also, once I knew I was pretty strategic about it, once I knew that like, my job would be reached out to for comment, I actually said yes to nearly every reporter who called me and asked for comment or to ask for an interview because I realized that if they're going to find out about it anyway, I then needed to do everything in my power to actually blow it up as much as possible so that it would look extra and more bad if like my company did decide it was within their right to fire me Mm -hmm. um it also like i think it was important that other people see my story too because like i think that everybody should be advocating for themselves at work everybody should be looking especially in jurisdictions where there are salary transparency uh laws everyone should be looking to see like what other companies are advertising you know the the position for they should be looking to make sure that they're getting paid their market value um but yeah I um I don't have any complaints about the media in in this particular situation
1: what I noticed through all the threads of reporting was this very common I think your case was so blatantly unjust and so blatantly unfair there was you know the the, the facts kind of stood on their own as sort of being like, this is a genuinely just an unfair and unjust sort of situation. And like you said, I think it was also a, a great sense of relatability that maybe assisted with that virality. I think so many people reading that, I, I had clients uh, bring up the story with me, you know, here in Europe. So it's one of those things where that, that visibility on this kind of injustice is, you know, superficial as some people could write it off as just really um kind of needs to get out there even though you didn't plan to be I think you wrote the poet laureate of pay transparency (laughs) was that yes yeah
0: Yeah, I I named myself the the poet laureate of, of pay transparency um well because like I've always yeah I've always wanted to be like the poet laureate of something hopefully like I don't know the United States or like even like my own state the poet laureate of New York or something but um I'm not there yet, so I was like, okay, well, at least I can declare myself the poet lord right of Pay Transparency.
1: Can we declare you that in our show notes? Um and potentially an episode title. <laughs> uh please do. <laughs> Let's make it spread.
0: Because I don't think any other poet is working in this space. No, it's really so niche. So like I feel like I deserve this title, so
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, yeah, you've, you've earned it and I think it's, it's yours and I'm definitely going to do everything I can to evangelize it. And Thank you. speaking of, uh, being a poet, could you tell us a little bit more about like what your ambitions are and your hopes are with your poetry? Uh, I did just see you have some exciting news as well with the tour. So please tell us more about your work and what your ambitions are.
0: Yeah, so I mean, currently, I'm very focused on rounding out and finishing my year long book tour. Um, So my book tour ends about in October. Um, I have been very blessed, I think, on this book tour, I was able to open the tour in my hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I brought my tour to Vietnam. um, And I'm going to Spain. Uh, in two weeks to guest lecture at a couple of universities so in that regard I'm I'm so so lucky because not that many poets get to first of all tour nor tour internationally so um, mm-hmm.
1: very very grateful um, I also yeah. I think- this isn't your day job by the way that's what I think people just should be aware of. this is like this is your real job but it's not your day job and you're doing this well sorry to, in- to interrupt you but I just want to say that yeah
0: do you see these like bags under my eyes like clearly like I don't sleep like it's it's been rough but um it's it it keeps me going I think um oh and then also like I think to close out my tour I will actually be closing in Slovakia oh um, because I think one of my poems yeah my poems is going to be on display at their their public museum so I'm very very excited about that yeah, but I think my ambitions as far as being a poet is to be able to, to do this full time. Yes. Um, to not have to kind of do it in between my day job to kind of be able to have like the mental energy to really like focus on it. Um, and it's not that I'm opposed to working full time either, because like I do need to get my health insurance from somewhere. Um, and truth be told, I, I do kind of like my job as a UX writer. Like it's, it's kind of fun. It's like a different like mental exercise. Mm-hmm. or gives me some like structure throughout the day. Um, but I don't have any like PTO, so I'm really like running on fumes here.
1: Yeah, um,
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'm working on my next book because I uh, am always I'm always working on something. I always want to like keep writing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, my friend is trying to bully me into writing a novel, which I'm finding that I'm not as good at um, as poetry. It's like a different skill set. But I'm I'm finding that it's um embarrassing how bad you have to be at something before you get really good at it yeah. so um currently embarrassing myself in my drafts um of my <laughs> novel um but yeah i'm just really hoping to to be a writer for f- full time to maybe be the Poet Laureate of the United States
1: someday. We are going to link to your shop as well, but I wanted to know if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your latest work, which is currently out here. I am burn me and just let them know a little bit about what this work is, because obviously buying directly from you is how people can support you the most.
0: Yeah. um, This book was a challenge for me because I decided that I was very ambitious and wanted to teach myself quantum physics to write this poetry collection. Um, wasn't very successful because quantum physics, it turns out, is very difficult. Um, but my the collection really kind of revolves around this idea of like quantum entanglement, which is essentially the fact that like the same particle can exist in like two states at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, kind of has theories about time and time kind of being entanglement rather than a, a linear thing. So throughout the collection, I'm really just kind of like calling out through through space and time. And I think my when my friends when they initially read it, they said there's just kind of this like feeling of yearning. Um, and I think that's that's really true because the the collection is a yearning to be like understood, a yearning to like reach somebody, a, a yearning to. To connect with with someone, anyone, um, so yeah. Without spoiling too much, I think that's just like the overarching like themes of of the poetry collection, and I really hope that they come out and people read read it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm definitely going to uh, to get into it. I couldn't encourage people more uh, to get onto your shop and make sure that they they buy this and hopefully get something from it. How else? Can our listeners, uh, support you and how can they keep up with you in the digital world?
0: Yeah. So I guess follow me on social media. Um, I'm Kay Win Poetry on Twitter and on Instagram, which are the two platforms that I'm most active on. I think that's, that's really it. Cause I don't like, I don't have a Patreon. I, I don't, I don't have time to like right. curate a Patreon. I don't have time to like have like a, a medium blog or like, a paid Substack. um, mm-hmm. But all of my tour dates are going to be announced on Instagram. Um, any like future books and, and writing that I that I have will be announced on Twitter and Instagram. So definitely keep up with me there.
1: Perfect. And thank you so much for coming on and, and for telling us about your experiences and really, you know, the, the thinking behind advocating for yourself in the workplace, but also as we discussed the repercussions, consequences and all of that in between. Thank you again for coming on.
0: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
1: Workplace Worldwide is produced by Kate Bailey and the team at Hand and Heart Media. For any inquiries related to this broadcast, please email hq at handandheart.eu. And don't forget to follow us on the gram at handandheart.eu. Original music is composed and performed by Amanda and produced by Amanda with Kyle Startup. You can follow Amanda and Kyle Startup on Instagram or listen to their music on Spotify, Apple, or SoundCloud. If you love Amanda's music, we do too, and we ask you to please consider buying it directly from Bandcamp. Support indie always. Thanks for listening, we appreciate your support.